Um, in this series, you and I are learning from the uh, scriptural text, the Bible text behind the Apostles' Creed. I'd like us to begin by reciting that ancient creed together. Let's say it all together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you so much. We're going to study some awesome truths about God today. But first, before we study awesome truths about God, we need to talk about a mole. Yes, the mole of the 15th green. My dad and his brothers used to play golf every Saturday, rain or shine, and sometimes they would let me come along when I was a boy and caddy for them. It was awesome until we met the mole of the 15th green. I was eight years old. I was in absolute heaven walking around Kickingburg Golf Course uh, with my dad and my uncles listening to them joke with each other. Of course, I didn't really caddy. I mean, you can imagine that. The clubs were way too big for me. I did rake bunkers. And, uh, and as the men putted, I, I held the flagstick off to the side. By the 15th green, as you can imagine, my eight-year-old mind was wandering. I was looking around when, on the side slope of the green, I spotted a cute little mole. He was so cute. I dropped the flagstick, and I went to pick him up. I was very careful to grab him by the back of the neck so he wouldn't hurt me. Only... To watch that little stinker rotate his head around like something from a bad horror film and bite me. I yelled, I reflexively threw that mole way up in the air. Daddy and my uncles came running when I yelled. They looked up, they looked all around, they listened for the thump of a mole, nothing. They looked everywhere because they knew, as, as I didn't at that age, that we'd need to find the body of that mole to check for rabies. We never found the mole, but that's another story. Here's the part of the story that applies to our lesson today. My uncle's hilarious comments while all this was going on. One of my uncles said, boy, you threw him so high, that poor mole burned out on reentry. Um, my, my, my dad remarked, I remember him, he was leaning over looking at stuff, and he said, his mom's going to kill me. And his loving brothers very supportively laughed at him and said, yeah, you're right. Um, but here's the best one, the best one. One of my uncles took off his cap, and he looked very solemn, and he said, he must have ascended into heaven. Now, kids, let's do a quick comparison. Listen up, children. You should engage with Jesus. Yeah, right. But you should leave wild animals alone. Leave them alone. Moles, think about moles versus Jesus. Moles shed your blood to save themselves. Jesus shed his own blood to save you. That mole didn't really ascend into heaven. My uncle was joking. Jesus really did. Unlike that fake ascension, Jesus really did go to heaven after his resurrection. Let me show you. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 1. You'll find Acts right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just before Romans. Go to Acts chapter 1. 
in your New Testament, and let's read verses 4 through 11. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. While he, Jesus, was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching. And a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. And suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Wow. As we understate the headline in your notes, if you were able to download and print off the notes, you'll see it says, Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus ascended. Think about the implications of that. That means he went to prepare a place as God. You see, Jesus' words right here continue a theme that he had voiced just before his crucifixion and resurrection. A few days earlier, Jesus had told his disciples he was going to prepare a place for them in his father's house. Here's the text, John 14, uh, starting at verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Now, Jesus is using an image that's very familiar to that audience. A, um, uh, in case you don't know this, a Jewish bride and groom would become betrothed. They legally wed, but they could not live together until a later date. That date was set at the complete discretion of the groom's father. The, the father usually based that decision on his analysis of the, his son, the groom's ability to prepare a proper place for his bride. Now, by the way, often that place was an addition built onto the father's house. Once the father was assured that the bride would be well provided for, he told the groom, son, go fetch your bride. You got the image? Okay, now, look at the astounding verbiage. This is amazing. John records Jesus' word prepare as etimazo. Etimazo. It means to make ready. The, the term doesn't appear very often at all in the New Testament, but it's used often in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. By the way, um, whenever you see this LXX, this 70, uh, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a long story, but that's what it refers to. Um, and, and in that 70, in the Greek translation, this is so cool. In, in the Greek Old Testament, etimazo, is used for the divine power of God in creating something. This particular verb indicates the power of God in crafting something. For example, here's another verse that uses the same word, Jeremiah 28, 15. He made etiamazo, the earth, by his power. What John is saying and what the creed means is that Jesus has gone to heaven as creator God. And his work there is to divinely create a perfect place for all who trust him. Some of you kids have sent me pictures of blanket forts that you have made uh, during the pandemic. There's little in life more comforting than a blanket fort, you know what? Mm. Notice how this child creator 
she, has, she has made a special place for her stuffed animals. Isn't that perfect? That's something like what the scriptures and the Apostles' Creed are saying. Jesus ascended to prepare a perfect blanket fort for each and every Christian. And we will be taken there when the Father says, Son, go fetch your bride. The Creed continues. Um, He ascended into heaven, I believe in the Son. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus reigns. This is what seated means. The concept is very deep in the human psyche. It stretches from early Old Testament uh, to modern cartoons. The person who has the power remains seated. So Pharaoh is seated in this 4,500-year-old statue. And King Bob, who is the monarch of the playground in the fantastic cartoon series Recess, King Bob is seated. The king is seated on his throne. That doesn't mean he can't rise or won't rise. Being seated is an expression of authority. Psalm 110 captures the idea in in this prophecy. Look at verse 1. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. God the Father speaks to God the Son, declaring the Son to be the authority under God the Father's authority. Jesus reigns, which means we need not be unhorsed by tragedy. The one reigning is not surprised at conflict. He knows there will be continual battle until... All the enemies are defeated. Therefore, his subjects should not be surprised by conflict either. On October 22nd, 1939, Professor and writer C.S. Lewis was asked to preach at this Oxford chapel. To give you a little context, days before that, Germany had invaded Poland and Britain was at war. Michael Berry of our church recently reminded me about Lewis's great speech that day. I'd like to read to you a few of Lewis's fantastic remarks. October 22, 1939. C.S. Lewis preached, I think it important to try to see the present calamity in a true perspective. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. We are mistaken when we compare conflict to normal life. Life has never been normal. Even those periods which we think most tranquil, like the uh, 19th century, turn out on closer inspection to be full of crises, alarms, difficulties, emergencies. Do not let, Lewis said, your nerves and emotions lead you into thinking your predicament more abnormal than it really is. Since our present context is not different in kind, but only in degree, from what we sometimes call normal life, then even the seemingly trivial pursuits of our lives should be seen as valuable. This is the last part we'll read of this great sermon. He says, the scriptures do not ask a person to set aside normal activities. Instead, they invite the Christian to engage in normal activities and offer them to God, who reigns over and beyond the warfare that is our true normal. 1 Corinthians 10.31 provides the model. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Close quote. Because Jesus is seated, because he is reigning over all the conflict until the Father's timing declares it done, we must see plagues and problems as normal. And we can soldier on with confidence. We can do everything for his glory, everything from making blanket forts to leading a country. 
C.S. Lewis wrapped up that sermon with uh, three practical admonitions. I, I find these especially helpful. During that, that understood norm that people refer to as a crisis, the Christian, C.S. Lewis said, should practice self-control instead of excitement, faith in place of frustration, and sobriety instead of fear. Jesus' ascension makes that possible because Jesus' ascension changes everything. His ascension sets in motion a critically important series of events. Jesus prepares a place for Christians, and he begins his heavenly rule as God the Son, pr promising an end to, to this norm of continual conflict. And on the right side of your notes, we list another thing connected to Jesus' ascension. The Holy Spirit comes in Jesus' physical absence. Look again, Acts chapter 1. Let's read verses 7 and 8. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or periods the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is why our forebears included in the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 exposes three massive truths about God the Spirit. First, the Holy Spirit permanently indwells believers in Jesus. That, that's what the verb tense of has come on means. That, that's what it indicates. This is a new concept. In the Old Covenant, this was prophesied, but it had never happened. People who had God's Spirit in the Old Testament could always lose it. Christians cannot because the way this is written tells us he has permanent, and a lot of other scriptures tell us as well, he has permanently come on them. Second, God the Spirit brings power. It is, it is the power of the Spirit that changes lives. It's what changes those shaken, craven disciples into world changers. The same is true for us. Just look at, look at Dr. Lewis's recommendations there about how to act during a crisis, which he points out is the norm. None of those is achieved by human strength. None of them. For, for example, just take the faith in place of frustration. I don't know about you, but the more I think about not being frustrated, the more frustrated I become. But if I yield to God's spirit in faith, my frustration begins to fade. Third change brought by the spirit is that Christians become Jesus' witnesses all over the world. Whatever we do, peace or war, we do for God's glory. Thus, in everything from saving lives to doing homework, we live as witnesses to the Jesus-changed life. Uh, Jesus' great upper room discourse reveals the idea this way. Turn in your Bible, leave Acts, and go back to the west in your Bible, just a few pages to the Gospel of John. It's just, it's just one book to the left. Uh, find John 15, John 15, and let's read John 15, 26 and 27. Jesus said, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Speaking of that upper room discourse, um, the, the upper room discourse, by the way, is this magnificent speech that Jesus gave on the night of his betrayal. During that evening discussion with his disciples, Jesus spoke a great deal about God the Spirit. Let me show you a few more excerpts. Um, go to John 14, just one page back in my Bible. John 14, uh, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him 
because he remains with you and will be in you. Verse 25, go down to verse 25. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. One more spot. Um, Go over to chapter 16, if you would. Chapter 16, uh, verses uh, 7 through 11. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's what we mean when we recite, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Specifically, we confess that the Spirit comes as our paraclete. Look, look, at, look at John 16, verse 7. Key in on that. The word that my Bible translates counselor is parakleton. Parakleton. That's your fancy word for the day. Boys and girls, on the count of three, you get to say parakleton. Okay, parakleton. On three. I haven't said three yet. Okay, here we go. Count of three. One, two, three. Parakleton. Very good. This amazing term means somebody walking beside you. Now, when it's used like this, it has its origins in in warfare, actually, in Greco-Roman military practice. Um, Here's how it worked. Everybody, here's what I'd like you to do. Everybody stand up. If, If you're able, stand up. And I want you to get into pairs. Get into pairs, okay? But in your pairs, listen... In your pairs, you need one person who is, who is larger and one person who is smaller, okay? Uh, a larger person and a smaller person. So, Robert, uh, come here. Mr. Leahy is this wonderful, strong guy, and he is going to, to be my partner here. You get your partner. Remember, one person that is larger and one person smaller. And then here's what I want you to do. Put the larger person between the smaller person and the main light source, Okay? So, like, our main light source right now is right up here. And so, Robert is between the light source and me, all right? If you are alone, if, if, you're, if you're solo right now, that's okay. Just imagine, go ahead and stand up. Imagine a, a larger, strong person between you and the light, okay? Parakleton. Here's how it works. Now, everybody, get, get with your partners. This is the Greek military idea from the flanks. And you're going to now march in place. Ready? March. March, 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 march. Da, 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 da. Okay, that's enough. Stop marching. That's the only exercise you've had all week. All right. Now, notice that if you look at the shadow as you're marching, um, you can see that the larger person blocks the smaller person from the light. As they're moving through this, this thing together, he is blocking them. I'll show you why that's important. Give a hand to Robert, by the way, and, uh, and, and you guys may be seated. Okay, everybody, you can break up. Your, you stop marching. You can break up your pairs, take a seat. You, okay, boys, you have to take a seat. Sit down, settle down so we can continue our learning together. All right, the paraclete, that is your marching partner. This is the person who is tied to your hip going into battle. It's the soldier friend who protects you. This is how the word was used, protects you from the heat of the sun on long marches. He guides you. He guards you. That... That is the word Jesus chose to describe the Holy Spirit. He is our parakleton. He is our paraclete. Awesome. Here's another truth about the Spirit. 
fully God. He comes from the Father and the Son. Notice John 14, 26 says, the Father will send God the Spirit. Okay, But in John 16, 7, Jesus declares that he, the Son, will send the Spirit. Hmm. I know, I, I know what you're thinking. In your, um, in your angry mole imitation, you're asking, does that really matter? Does that matter? Thank you so much for asking, angry mole. Yes, it does. You see, there are some churches that reject John 16, 7. I, I'm totally serious here. They, they demand that the Spirit could not come to Christians from Christ himself, but only comes from the Father. These churches, and I'm not trying to pick on people, but they are on very thin ice here. They especially run the risk of minimizing God the Son, making him less than fully deity. That is a dangerous mistake. God is three in one. The Father, Son, and Spirit are each fully God. The Spirit coming to believers from the Father and the Son doesn't make him less fully God. The Son is fully God. Yahweh the Father is God. The Spirit is God. Now, kids, don't ask your parents to explain that perfectly because it is beyond human comprehension. You see, everyone who tries to make the triune God sensical to humans falls through the heresy ice uh, along with those churches who say Jesus doesn't give the Spirit. Speaking of ice, you have probably heard water used as an allegory for the Trinity. Water can be solid, it can be liquid, it can be gas, it's still the same compound. Yes, that is true, but water can't be all three at the same time. God is eternally. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at the same time, all as one God. And by the way, it's not just water. The same is true of every attempt to illustrate the triunity of God. The allegories are fine. Use them. But just know they cannot capture God, which, think about this, I think is frankly very comforting. You see, when we confess that we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we can see that it's reasonable. But we can't totally understand it. And I say, hooray! I would not want to believe in a God who was limited by my mental capacity. In, in, in the immortal words of the Hulk, a God that I could fully comprehend would be what? Boys and girls, puny God. Right? That would be a puny God. Finally, the Holy Spirit, he comes as the spirit of truth. You see how often that's used of him? He is truth. He testifies to truth, convicting the world about sin, righteousness, judgment. And the Holy Spirit teaches us to testify to truth. Now, did you notice something interesting there? Empowered by the Spirit, we are to testify to truth, but we are not supposed to convict the world. That is the Holy Spirit's job. Of course, that brings up the big question in everyone's minds, in, in your C.S. Lewis imitation, you're, you're asking the same question I am. Well, then how can one tell the difference? I mean, what distinguishes truth-telling from conviction, old boy? Great question, Jack. Thank you for asking. Here's the big difference. Human beings can speak truth in love. Humans cannot convict in love. We can only convict with blame or shame. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, he shares the truth in love and he convicts in love because God is love. For example, I chatted uh, with a very weary police officer during the quarantine and I asked him what was hardest on him during those days. Yes, we were more than six feet apart, but 
I was visiting with this uh, police officer, and I said, what's hardest for you during these days? And he said this. He said, people calling to rat on their neighbors for being outside. He added this incredibly insightful note. I wrote it down after our conversation. He said, Wayne, they say they're calling because they care, but that's not true. They flood 911 with that silliness because they are scared and looking for someone to blame. Isn't that well said? Now, you ready to have your mind blown? The very word we translate convict in John 16, 8 shows that exact distinction. Elejo is an old, really old Greek term. It's one of the, one of the oldest Greek terms, actually. It goes way, way back beyond Homer. Um, in the Bible, get this, in the Bible, elejo is very straightforward. It means to show someone their sin and bring them to repentance, to change their mind. That is what God the Spirit does perfectly. Sometimes he uses people in that process, sometimes not. But get this, outside the Bible, elejo hardly ever means what it does in Scripture. Instead, elejo indicates scorn or, or shame and or blame. It isn't showing sin and guiding someone to the healing that God offers in His grace. Oh, no, no, no. Outside the Bible, elejo is... It's like a social media post during an election year. It's all about ridicule. And that's the exact problem. We resemble that ugliness far too much because we try to play Holy Spirit. That's why Christians are truth tellers. But it is not our job to play Holy Spirit because we make puny gods, right? So leave the conviction to the Holy Spirit. He does it with love and not with shame. Um, really, the mole again? Okay. Well, you're now pointing out, I know some of you people pointing out, that we skipped something. You're looking at the Apostles' Creed and you're saying, Pastor Wayne, you skipped that part. Right? The, the, the part about coming to judge the living and the dead. Thank you so much. I appreciate you pointing that out, Molly. Yes, I did skip that. Jesus will return as prophesied. I just wanted to save that for last because it is so encouraging. Let's review where we are in today's study of the scriptures behind the Apostles' Creed. Okay, just look at where we are. Jesus' ascension sets in motion a critically important series of events. Jesus prepares a place for Christians. He begins his heavenly rule as God the Son, promising an end to the norm of continual conflict. The Holy Spirit is granted to believers, and the Father starts his timetable for God the Son's earthly rule, which will fulfill prophecy and brings judgment. And finally, Jesus' ascension completes his commission for believers to use his gifts and fulfill the ministry he's granted. Amen. As we say in our notes, when God the Son returns, he will rule on earth. That's why the angelic beings spoke to the disciples standing on the Mount of Olives at Jesus' ascension. They said, he will return the same way. This, this is the other half of what God revealed to David in Psalm 110. Um, we, we read verse 1 earlier. Now let's read all of the section here in Psalm 110, this prophecy. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Jesus will judge. Now, a scepter is the symbol of authority over life and presence. Life and presence. That's why kings and queens are shown holding a scepter. They have the power of life and presence. The king or queen rules over life. They can grant pardon even to people who are convicted to die. 
They can also say, off with their heads. Uh, they judge the enemies of the kingdom with their power over life. The king or queen also rules over presence. They can extend their scepter in grace, allowing someone to enter the royal presence. That's what Jesus will do for those who trust him when he reigns from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And speaking of Jesus' rule, his physical kingdom is going to start with a bang. Look here, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley, so that half of the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. This was likely in the minds of that crowd that first Palm Sunday, as Jesus fulfilled a different one of Zechariah's prophecies. The people were terrified. They were yelling, Hosanna, God save. But they got the context all wrong. Zechariah clearly talks about massive armies and, and displacements of Jews, none of which was occurring then. That first Palm Sunday was not the fulfillment of Zechariah 14. But Zechariah 14 will be fulfilled. Jesus will return as promised. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives. It will split, and he will walk across the new valley up to Mount Zion and rule from there for a thousand years as promised. And he will judge. Now, there are seven distinct judgments mentioned in the Bible. The first one is probably most significant to many of us. It is the judgment seat of Christ. It's often called the Bema uh, after a, an image that the Apostle Paul used to describe it. Um, this is where believers in Jesus will receive or, or not receive rewards. Uh, if you want to look it up, the main texts on this are 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, George Hillman, good morning, George. He's a Dallas Seminary professor, a wonderful teacher in our congregation. He recently shared with his men's group uh, a great statement about the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, George quoted from Samuel Hoyt's book, The Judgment Seat of Christ. I really like this picture. Hoyt says, The judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one did not do better and work harder. By the way, you know that. You, you, you look at the little thing and you see all those awards and you're like, oh, I probably should have gotten one of those. Anyway, um, there's remorse that one did not do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they did not earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they have been graduated. And they are grateful for what they did achieve. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. To underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. Close quote. It's well said. Just to be clear, it is sloppy theology to speak of one judgment day. There are, there are many, and they occur at different times and places. The first one is the judgment seat of Christ. The second is judgment of Old Testament saints. Uh, that means people who believe that God would save them from, from their death, their death in sin, in the promised Messiah, this Messiah who was to come. If you want to read about that one, Daniel chapter 12 speaks to that. Revelation 20 details the third judgment, and that's for people who trust Jesus during the tribulation. The tribulation is this really awful period that precedes the start of Jesus' earthly kingdom. Um, fourth is the judgment of Jewish survivors of that tribulation period. 
this one's mentioned in Matthew 25, 1 through 30. Charles Ryrie gives the best summary about this one that I can find. Many years ago in his basic theology, Dr. Ryrie said this, the judgment of Jewish survivors of the tribulation is described in Ezekiel 20 and illustrated in Matthew 25. Ezekiel states it will occur after all surviving Israelites have been regathered from the ends of the earth to the land of Palestine. Christ will cause them to pass under the rod. That's a line from Leviticus 27 to purge out the rebels. As a result, those rebels, the unsaved, will not enter the land of Israel, but will be cast into the outer darkness. In contrast, those who successfully pass through this judgment will enter the millennial kingdom to enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. Hey, kids, kids, what was the last thing you did for which you got in trouble? Um, I, I think, let's do this. If you can, have somebody, some adult, uh, type onto the live stream chat right now the last thing you did. To, we don't need the lurid details. Um, that, that might not be edifying for the whole group, but just the last thing you did to get in trouble. Okay, I, I really look forward to reading these later. Um, here's some that I have been told lately. Uh, Pastor Wayne, I got in trouble. I faced judgment for sneaking extra screen time uh, in my blanket for it, no less. Um, I got in trouble for hitting my brother. I faced judgment for yelling at mom, yelling at the cat, yelling at the dog, um, saying bad words. And one kid told me I faced judgment for whining. Those are all bad. And life is not right or good if those aren't corrected, right? Well, that's a little like what will happen in these judgments to come. Jesus is the ultimate judge, and he must conduct judgment to make everything right. Here's his, his fifth judgment. That's the judgment of the Gentiles who survive the tribulation period. The rest of Matthew 25 talks about that, verses 31 through 46. Um, by the way, a little trivia for you. Joel chapter 3 says that that judgment will happen in a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. You know how in cartoons um, Satan is shown as eternally in charge of hell? That, that's taken from myths. The, the Bible declares Satan will eternally be in charge of nothing. He will be judged along with his fallen angels, demons. Matthew 25 and Revelation 20 tell that wonderful story. The final judgment is very tragic. It is of the unsaved dead. At the conclusion of Jesus' millennial kingdom, unbelievers of all eras will be raised and judged. By the way, Revelation 20 says this will happen at the great white throne. This is incredibly sad. Because those who are judged there will not have God's scepter extended to them. Having rejected God's grace, the scepter will instead be withheld from them. And they will be judged according to their deeds. And then they will be separated from the presence of God forever. There is one way to avoid those negative judgments. No matter the era, no, no matter the situation, God has made one way for humans to enjoy his life and to enjoy his presence. The judge offers life and presence in this one way. Trust in Jesus. Read with me. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Join me on the underlined text. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Amen. But 
as you are very likely asking in your, um, your imitation of the German elector Friedrich III, you're, you're saying, what is all that to me? What is all that to me? Great question. That is exactly the question that was asked by a bunch of Germans about 500 years ago. They were meeting here in Friedrich III's castle uh, in a town called Heidelberg. And, and they put together, inside that castle, they put together a summary of scripture called the Heidelberg Catechism. And this was one of their questions. Same question you just asked. They asked, Wer kontrost ist für sie? Just kidding. In English, they asked, What comfort is it to you? What comfort is it to you that Christ should come to judge the living and the dead? This was their brilliant answer. That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. All God's people said, Amen. And know this, know this. That was written by people who were in the middle of a war, a war in which they were being severely persecuted because they trusted in Jesus alone. There are seven judgments. And when I consider those seven judgments, when I say in the Apostles' Creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead, I, I live differently now. On June 8, 1941, about a year and a half after that first uh, sermon, C.S. Lewis spoke again in that same pulpit in Oxford. And he decided to speak on this, on this first judgment, the rewards that Christians will receive at the Bema. The church was packed. The speech was so wise that it was later bound into a book. You can read it. It's called The Weight of Glory. I want you to listen to this famous section of The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're, we're, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Indeed, Jesus' ascension confirms that he will judge, and that should change my attitude about every great and little thing in life. Speaking of which, there's one last thing that Jesus' ascension leads to in our lives now, and that is service. Jesus empowers us to do his work here and now. The, the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work of Jesus, the commands he's given. That's not limited to Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and that original generation. It extends all the way to us. Look, look here, Ephesians chapter 4. There's a paragraph in Ephesians 4 where the Apostle Paul connects Jesus' ascension to our service. This, this is so cool. Look, verses 10 through 12. The one Jesus who descended from heaven is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured 
by Christ's fullness. Awesome. But that, that begs a question as we sit here today. I just want to ask you this. Is that true? Let me, let me put it this way. Is the universal church of Jesus finished with that growth as we sit here today? Have we managed to measure up to the stature set by Jesus? Yes or no? No, we have not. Well, that means we still have work to do. This is why Paul says uh, a little bit later, fulfill your ministry. It's why he reminds us that our gifts are not granted for us they are for the building up of God's church, and that is not limited by any war or any pandemic. We are always at war. Our job is to learn how to fulfill our ministry despite the limitations of each and every age. So, to encourage you and to maybe spark some ideas, let me share just a few things that I have seen the people of Frisco Bible Church doing lately. Here's what I have seen and heard you do, specifically calling people you don't know all that well. And I mean using the actual telephone, not just a text. It's astonishing. And the caller, this has been happening all over our church, the caller just asks what's going on, giving the other brother or sister a space to vent. That's awesome. There are people who are giving extra, I don't see this, but I see the results of it, giving extra to the church general fund and to the benevolence fund, knowing that the needs right now are great. I keep hearing about people who are stopping to talk with strangers, six feet apart, of course, stopping to talk to strangers as they're on a walk. And, and as the conversation inevitably these days, inevitably turns to life and death issues, the Christian just proclaims the good news of life and presence that is offered in Jesus. That's awesome. Here's another way I see you doing Jesus' work by the power of the Holy Spirit, contacting Every single kid in your Sunday school class or in your youth small group, like, like this, the, the, all the students in our uh, I-45 ministry, that big group of fourth and fifth graders, they all got these packages delivered to their houses that had all this great stuff. That was beautiful. How do I see you fulfilling your ministry? Some of you are fulfilling your ministry by not posting that divisive meme. You're not sending that brilliant but condescending letter that puts you in the Holy Spirit's place. Well done. Some of you are thinking about new ideas. You're, you're being creative, thinking about how to fulfill ministry in this life now and later. And, and many, are, many are loving your family, loving your spouse, speaking out loud that you are grateful, that you are bound together in God. Yes, of course, you're getting on each other's nerves. But you know that it is a blessing and an honor to be bound together, to be one in the Lord. And, of course, there is much, much more. The point is we should fulfill our ministry because we know that Jesus ascended and has empowered us through God the Spirit. That's the truth, and that's what we believe. Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with us, wherever and whenever they may be looking at these scriptures with us, and I ask you to bless them. For those who are not believers in Jesus, I beg you to draw them to yourself right now, to let them see that everything in this life is an attempt to be our own puny God. And I beg you that they will let it go. 
we make horrible gods. You love us so much that you gave your only son to die on the cross. And he conquered death and sin and rose from the grave so that in Christ alone we can have everlasting life. Friend, if you have never trusted Jesus, do so right now. Believe in him. Jesus ascended into heaven and he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. We don't know when that will be. Please take advantage of the opportunity now to grab a hold of the scepter of grace that is extended to you from Jesus the judge. Trust him. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, you can write me. You'll find the information uh, address on the website. You can also indicate that on uh, some of the live stream options. And Father, I pray as well for all those who are believers in Jesus that we will fulfill our ministry, that what we believe becomes action because it is an honor to serve as ones whom you have left behind and are coming back to get. And we pray that we will do so in every little thing and every big thing as people who are always at war and know that we win. In Jesus' name, amen.